Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as our guest speaker delivers this week's message. Man, that was awesome. And just to be able to be here and, and celebrate a baptism too, we, like, that is such a, an amazing thing that happens in someone's life. Uh, not to just have that happen to them spiritually, but us uh, as just believers coming together to celebrate just the, the connection and what's happening in someone else's life is an incredible thing. See, today we're going to talk about uh, something that is something really we all need to know and really touches into uh, just the storyline of baptism and how that shapes us in community. There you are. I knew you were here. I just couldn't see you. Hey, uh, my name is Chad, by the way, and I was here a couple weeks ago. Maybe you were here, maybe you weren't. But uh, my wife and I, my bride of almost 28 years, uh, lived here for a long time. And we have been doing ministry in Florida for the last, or well, in Florida first for five years, and then in Georgia for 11 years. But really, this is home to us. Every time we come home, I grew up here, Marla grew up here, we come back here, this is home to us. So therefore, you are family. Is that okay? Is it, is it, I don't know if you wanted to be family this morning, but we're family. So um, we, we've got to come to terms with that. But here's what I want us to, to kind of see before we jump into God's Word. I want you to understand this phrase, and this phrase is going to inform everything else that I talk about today. And ultimately, it's going to inform you, and it's also going to be able to dictate where you are in your walk with God. And, and I realize that I'm not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through His Word, and that's what we're going to see is these five takeaways where we're going to be able to evaluate our lives spiritually in regards to other people. So this is the phrase that will inform everything else. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. You see, if you are a football player, I need some help, by the way. If you're a football player, what do you do? Play football. All right, I need full participation, right? So if you play football, or if you're a football player, you play football. If you play baseball, right? Or you're a baseball player, you do what? Play Play, that's what I'm talking about. I like this. We're building some steam here, right? If you're a doctor, you practice doctor stuff, right? Yeah, there you go. Medicine. I was kind of looking for medicine, but we'll call it whatever you said, right? So, all right, here, I have one. This is a little tricky. If you're a politician, if you're a politician, you we don't really know. Let's be honest. We're not really sure. They do something. It's valuable work, but we're not really sure. So we'll get into something that we do know about. If you're a dad, what do you do? You do dad stuff. You do dad jokes and cargo shorts and white socks with sandals. You do the things, right? We're dads. That's what we do. Sorry, dads. I just told on all of us. We, that's, that's our trajectory. Just get over it right now, right? And if you're a mom, what do you do? Everything, exactly. I, I, I didn't have that in my notes, but it was here, and it was in my mind. I was like, you do everything, therefore you're tired, right? That's what, exactly. But it's also true of this. Now we're all together. You see, you just verified by what you said to me, who you are, it helps determine what you do. But we looked at things that weren't spiritual, and sometimes when it comes to things that aren't spiritual, we look at those, and it becomes really clear. But yet when we think about things spiritually and we say, well, I'm a Christian, now what does that mean to be a Christian? And not that I can spend the next 40 minutes or so and, and get into all of that as to what it means to be a Christian, but what we can see from God's Word is He has a plan for us, 
And he has a calling for us, and he has a conduct that matches that calling. Because who you are determines what you do. Just the way it is. We also know this, you change over time. Anyone who has had more than one child, you know that your parenting style changes over more children you have. Let's be honest. Some of you have had a lot of kids, and you tried really hard on the first one, a little too hard, right? And then the second one, you got a little bit more lax. The third one, a little bit more lax. And the fourth one, you don't even feed them anymore. You just point to the cabinet where the food is, right? And, like, get it yourself. So here's the thing. Not only do we do what it is, like, for us, every one of us, not only do we do the things uh, based upon who we are, but also we improve upon those things. We do this as parents. We, uh, if you're a mechanic and you turn wrenches, you're most likely a better mechanic at 20 years than you were at year one. If you're a barista and you're making coffee, you're going to make better coffee. It's going to be a better experience for coffee drinkers. Any other coffee drinkers in the house this morning? All right. That, these God's people right there. Raise your hand. There you go. Um, love coffee. But you get better over time. It's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple way of looking at it. And it's almost like sometimes in life, we also need like little pep talks like we're in halftime of a football game. Sometimes we need little pep talks, pep talks and little transition times in our life. And I think this in the life of this church is a transition time. And in it, maybe I give you a little pep talk, but there's going to be a little challenge too. But ultimately, it's going to come back to this idea that, that you ultimately will do the things based upon who you are. Are. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your walk with Jesus should be sharpening you in such a way that you over time become more and more like Jesus and less and less like your old self. Can I get an amen? amen. Not perfectly, but increasingly. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into what's the halfway point into Paul's message in Ephesians 4 is where we're going to dive in. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is just after the halfway point in this letter. I'll give you some interesting things that become really important about us. These aren't just random facts. They're important to know the severity and the intensity of which Paul is talking about, particularly in this passage. Ephesus, the the city of Ephesus, was like a New York or a London of its time. It was very influential. Things that happened in Ephesus would trickle down into the rural communities. Whether we like it or not, the the large cities in our country, what they do, the styles, the fashions, even the thought process, it trickles down even into rural communities like Taylorville. It just happens. So it's an influential city. This is a desired location for people to go to because that's where the movers and shakers were. They were like a a self-sufficient and self-motivated church. They were based upon the city and the study. And you would know this too. If, if you do a deep dive and study Revelation 2 through 3, you see that there's the seven letters to, to the churches that, that John, the Apostle John, writes. He writes the letters to these churches. Of those churches, Ephesus is on the list. And it's on the list in a really important way and becomes important for our understanding here. Because not only did John say that, that they needed a letter, the church of Ephesus, it was known that that, that all of those letters would cycle through the church of Ephesus. So it would land in Ephesus, and all those letters would go to the rest of the churches in Ephesus. It was the, it was the hub and center of that community. And what happened in Ephesus trickled down into other communities. So when Paul is writing this message, it is for the church in Ephesus, but also all of the surrounding 
people to kind of listen in and to gather some meaning from. Ephesians 2, the, the, the place of Ephesus was not only influential, it was, it was a wealthy area. And because they had some wealth, they had developed some self-sufficiency. So Paul, in writing this, this amazing little letter that has six chapters, it can be divided in this way. The people have divided a bunch of different ways. It could be divided this way. The first three chapters talk about identity in Christ. The last four chapters talk about unity in Christ. So the first three were what? Identity in Christ. The last four, help me, were unity in Christ. And now he's making this transition in the letter right into the piece that talks about unity. So let's talk about and dig into what it is um, that God's Word has for us today, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of alls there in that passage. But now we see this, this halfway point, and there's a transition. I don't know about you, but I'm a football fan. Anybody else a football fan in here? Anyone? I love football. We, we're a, a football family, whether it's pro football. I'm a Dolphins fan, which means I've been suffering for decades. That's what that means. I'm a Dolphins fan. And we, have, we, we like college football. We like high school football. I've had the opportunity of sitting in on several halftime speeches of being a chaplain at our, one of our area uh, high school football teams. And, and our team's not very good. So just to be honest with you, they're not very good. They haven't been good for a little while. So it's always interesting for me. And I would go in and hear the halftime speech, and I'm like, what kind of speech are we going to get today? Because you just don't know. I mean, they're just getting beat. And it's like to the point where they're not going to recover. They're not going to win. So I'm like, is the coach going to be honest? Or is the coach just going to like, hey, let's get this game over with and let's start looking for like what's going to happen in a couple weeks or something. But these halftime speeches are interesting. And I've never given a halftime speech, probably because I'd be a little too honest. But, uh, but I want to give you just, if, if I were going to give a halftime speech that could be honest and true, I just want to share what, what that would be. Now, since we're at the halfway point of, of, of Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, this is what my halftime speech, something like it, this is what I would say. Gather around, men. Gather around. Ain't much left to say. Now, I don't want you thinking about the score or hoisting that championship trophy because we're not going to win it. I want you to think on this. Well, what remains? we got one half of football left. For most of you, this will be your last football game that you'll ever play. The clock's going to hit zero. You'll never get on this field again. This is your last game. What will remain of your time? The friendships, absolutely. Your friendships will remain after this game's over. A brotherhood made of sacrifice and determination. That's the truth, gentlemen. What else will remain? Well, Billy, that mangled finger that you got that points straight up in the air from grabbing that face mask that cost us the game last week, that's going to be there forever unless you have surgery. Well, what else? Well, that cartilage that got dislodged from the tackle that you received your freshman year, that's going to be just hanging out there for a long time. Oh, and the trauma of group showers, they're going to stay with you forever. Oh, yeah, and 
There may be one exception for this. Oh, yeah, and, and the smell of icy hot will never leave your nose. Unless, of course, you get COVID. That's the one exception. Um, and then everything leaves your nose. Okay, I wouldn't be very good at giving a halftime speech, but Paul's halftime message is incredible. Let's dig into it. Verse 1. He says this, as a prisoner for the Lord. We'll stop there for a moment. He's letting us know and also his audience know where he is. This isn't like prisoner, you know, like a, a prison like from Shawshank Redemption or, or Alcatraz. He's in house arrest. So it's, it, it functions differently. He had done nothing wrong other than preaching the gospel. And, and until even maybe this past year in our country, we would have thought, well, preaching the gospel, how could that land somebody in prison? Until, unfortunately, you hear the news of, of Canadian pastors being thrown in prison and getting six-year sentences simply for gathering their church during COVID. So then we start to understand maybe just a glimpse of what Paul's talking about here. He says he is as a prisoner for the Lord. He's in house arrest simply because he's sharing the gospel message. When we look at this, we start to understand what's going on inside of Paul as he's writing this passionate letter to these people. This isn't a pass- just a passing letter to a group he doesn't know. He had lived there for three years. He had lived there with this group for three years. He had been embedded with them, doing life with them, loving them, teaching them, encouraging them doing the things that a pastor does. And yet he's in this time of imprisonment, and now he's, he's in house arrest in Rome, separated from these people, but he's thinking about them. And because he's on house arrest, it functioned just widely different than our prison system now. He's on house arrest, so he could still have guests. So now he would be writing these letters, and then his guest would be sending those letters out. You see where he is physically, but you also see where he is spiritually. He's thinking about these churches that he had invested in over the years. Another little telling part of this, as we continue on in verse 1, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, he says, then I urge. That's a Greek word, parakaleo. It's the word that we would use for plead or beg. So he's pleading with them. Now you can really sense the, the tension that he's feeling while he's in house arrest. And he lo- he's loving these people. And he's, he's trying to draw them to, to this teaching. Remember your identity in Christ. Keep the unity in Christ. Remember your identity in Christ. Keep the unity in Christ. The, the world is an evil place. There are things that are going around you that are going to seek to divide you and to tear you apart. He says, so here's what I want you to know. That in the first half of the message... The identity in Christ, this is who you are. And the latter part is, this is what you should do based upon who you are. Because who you are determines what you do. So he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. That word worthy, if you have uh, something to take notes with, this word worthy is interesting. And it really, it brings all of this together. The word worthy is the, is the Greek word axios, and it means equal weight. Well, what is equal weight? What is he talking about? He's talking about one's calling and one's conduct, and he's saying this should be in balance because who you are determines what you do. 
Because who you are determines what you do. So this is a hinge word in this passage. To live a life worthy. Axios. Having equal weight. Meaning that, that your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ and your conduct as a follower of Jesus Christ should be in balance. They should know who you are by looking at your life, even outside of listening to your words. They should be looking at your life and the way that you conduct your life and the Christian character that you have should inform people in such a way that they say, you are different. I want to know what's different in you. We can summarize it and say this. A Christian's calling is to have Christ-like character. Because who you are determines what you do. A Christian's calling, this is Paul's reference talking about identity in Christ. With Christ-like character of being united in Christ. Or the unity we're going to see in a moment. But it's all connected to this word, axios. Great word. Some other passages uh, just kind of speak into this from Ephesians 1.18. A supporting uh, passage or two will help. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He has called. His holy people who are rich, who are His rich and glorious inheritance. Another passage, Romans 8.28-29, through 29, a familiar passage. To many of us. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance. He chose them to become like His Son. Notice, here's a connection between calling and conduct. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called of God, not with this special calling. He's talking about every single person who calls himself a Christian, who've given their lives to Jesus Christ. They've asked for the, the, just the remittal of their sins, asked for their sins to be cleansed by the, by the righteous blood of Jesus. So that's the, the calling that he's making reference to. And he says, for God knew his people in advance that he chose them to become like his son. That brings together calling and conduct. Meaning this, this is making reference to the person that you are and the life that you live. But what do we know? We also know that we can look different than what we are. We can look different on the outside than what we are on the inside, can't we? Does anyone know that to be true? Sometimes we can put a big smile on our face, but inside we're not really happy. Right? Sometimes we can get into the space and we can just... We can just kind of like go through the motions, but yet inside things are bothering us. Had a, a weird occurrence. I'd never seen this before. Uh, we went to our son's not here. Our son and daughter-in-law live in, in Georgia where we live. And so went out to their house. They just bought a, a brand new house or bought yeah, a brand new house for them and on 30 acres. And it's great. And they're clearing land and they're doing all those things. We're so, so stinking proud of them. After they had put in their house and everything and they don't even have a lane and it's just dirt and weeds and all that, but it's great, and it's house, you know, their house, and uh, going to have a great family there. But I looked out in, their, in one of their pasture areas, and there were some gigantic watermelons, like gigantic watermelons. And I'm like, what in the world is up with these watermelons? I'm like, I looked at my son, and my son, is, he takes after his dad. We are not gardeners. We're not. 
I mean, I'm just thankful that, that Kroger is my gardener, right? And Walmart is my gardener. I, like, if it was up to me to grow stuff, we'd be dead. We, would, we just would, or we'd be living off coffee. I don't know, something. Um, but I go over to his house, and I was like, when did you plant watermelon? Because they're huge, and they looked really good. And he's like, oh, those aren't watermelon. I'm like, those are watermelon. I'm like, they're watermelon. I look at them. They're watermelon. i like, I know what a watermelon looks like. I like watermelon. They're watermelon. He's like, no, they're like some rogue watermelon. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, though, we didn't even plant they, planted, We didn't even plant those. No one planted those. They just grew there. And he said, if you were to cut it open, the inside of it would be disgusting. And I was like, isn't that interesting? Because on the outside, it looked in one way, but on the inside, it was totally different. But let's be honest. We can be different on the outside than we are on the inside too, right? We can even, we can have even given our lives to Jesus so we know that we're saved. We know that eternity is secure in heaven with Him, and yet our conduct cannot match our calling. Can we be honest and say that that's true? That sometimes we're just not the people publicly that we are privately. And one of the things I found about my own life is this, there's some, some things that kind of trigger me and, and kind of get me into, into bad places. And one of them is this, that who you really are will ooze out of you either when you're tired, angry, or hurt. In, in seasons of my life, I want to tell you, and even waiting in the TSA line at the airport trying to get here on Friday, waiting in the line for like an hour and 15 minutes through the turnstile, you know, I mean, at least if you do that at Six Flags, you're waiting for the Screaming Eagle, you get to ride the Screaming Eagle, right? Like for us, I was like, I just felt like screaming. I, there was no eagle coming. Like I didn't know what to do. We're just kind of hanging out, waiting in the turnstile, wondering what in the world is going on, you know? But, but it's in those moments where you're just a little bit less sensitive, a little bit less patient, a little bit less humble, a little bit less, fill in the blank. It's because who we really are just, just naturally oozes out of us either when we're tired, angry, or hurt. And I, I want to stop for just a second and just say, you know what? Some of you are tired, angry, or hurt, and I want you to know that God loves you. And that God is more compassionate than any person who's walked on earth. And, and, and I just want to say I'm sorry for what happened to you. And, and I don't know what it was, but God does. And while I can't be the person who, who solves all the world pro, world's problems, what I can do is I can point you to the Creator who's loving and compassionate and merciful and caring, and He can provide everything that you need. And He can be the very satisfaction for your soul. Let's get into these five characteristics. We'll spend the rest of our time together talking about these. Verse 2 says, be completely humble. So the first one is humility. Is there anything challenging about that verse to you or that part of the verse? Completely humble. I mean, I would feel a lot better if it said, just be a little humble. Right? Just be a little humble. Be humble when you want to be humble. Just be humble. You're humble. Chad, you're humble. You're at home by yourself. You're, you're sitting in your easy chair. You're watching your show. What a humble state I'm in. Right? But like when somebody does something wrong or I think I'm just really right or, you know, Marla and I don't get into arguments, but we get into some disagreements, you know, over these years. But there's times where I just think I'm right. 
And it's in those times where it's like <clears throat> completely humble, <clears throat> completely humble. And in every aspect of life. But that's what he, he, he talks about here. And he says, be completely humble. I, I think one of the things that we have to really wrestle with, too, is when, it talks, when we talk about these familiar words in the Bible, sometimes we just, once we hit one of these words, it's almost like a trigger where we go to sleep for the rest of them and we'll wait until the message is over. And while I, I would love to be able to do a series and do a deep dive on, on all of these and really unpack them, I'm not going to be able to do that today. But what I will give you for humility, because that is something that we talk about a lot, is, is a quote from a theologian by the name of Andrew Murray, and he said that humility is the virtue that every other virtue hangs. So there's a reason why Paul starts with saying completely humble. So I'm going to give you two ideas around humility, then I'm going to move on. First one is this. For us to be humble, because humil- when it comes to humility, it, that's one of the things we, we just really struggle with, and we just don't know. If we say, yeah, I'm really being humble, it actually verifies that you're not humble, right? So it gets really confusing. Like, I'm the most humble person that I know. Like, really? Hmm, that's interesting, right? So I want to give you two things to help you with this. First of all, if we're going to be completely humble, remember who we were before Christ. Remember who we were before Christ. Now, we may have to go back into the annals of time a long time, uh, you know, decades ago. But we need to go back to remember who it was we, that we were before Christ. You see, if we remember who we were before Christ, then we start to understand the state of our soul before Christ met us. And if we get to that place, then what we do is, then we can find common ground with every human being. Because we're all the same in that regard. A second thing I would say to this, and then I'm going to give a supporting verse. Rejoice in what God is doing for you. So one has to do with the past, and the other one has to do with the present. You don't want to live in the past. You don't want to live in the, you know, you don't want to live in the future. You want to be in the present. So to do this, remember who you were before Christ. Secondly, rejoice in what God is doing in you. The supporting verse would come from Isaiah 53, 6. And it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And notice what it says next. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. If there's anything that should lead us to a place of humility is understanding of where we were before we gave our lives to Jesus and all of the blessings that we have because now we're united with Jesus. The second one, right from this passage, right after humility is gentleness. Gentleness can be translated as meekness. Meekness is, is again, one of these interesting Bible words that gets glossed over a lot. It means power under control. Meekness, there's a lot of myths around meekness. They think meekness is like a feather. It's like, I can't have a backbone. I can't say what's true because I might offend somebody. So I gotta, I've got to be meek and I've just got to be quiet and I just have to be, you know, like literally no, no backbone. It's like an amoeba, like just hanging out. I can't, I can't say what's right, although I know what's right. I can't speak my, my, my opinion. I can't say what's true, although I know it's true. 
That's actually not being gentle. That's not what meekness is. Meekness, we see this in the life of Jesus. I mean, you, you look at, at what Jesus did. It says uh, in Matthew, yeah, Matthew eleven twenty nine. it says that, that Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. But yet he was the same one who drove out the money and the, the, the money changers out of the temple. Remember that? That just blows up the, the, the myth that, you know, that to be meek is like a feather. I just can't say anything. I just have to kind of go with what's going on around me. That's not meekness. It's power under control. An illustration would be a horse or, or a young colt. Incredible strength. But until that, that horse is broken, that strength is never utilized. It's never fully utilized. But yet, when that horse is broken and they realize how to actually use that strength, then they can leverage that strength and they actually become stronger than what they once were. So that would be an illustration, a way to understand meekness. And I think that the other myth is, well, I don't know how to be meek, so I'm just going to be a sledgehammer. I don't know how to be meek, so I'm just going to be a sledgehammer. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that gal. So if something needs said, I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to say it. I don't care what they say. I don't care the facial expressions I get. I've just got to be, I've got to be the sledgehammer. That's not meekness either. Meekness is power under control of the Holy Spirit. Meekness is power under control of the Holy Spirit. Surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So the first one was humility. The, the second one had to do with gentleness or meekness could be translated as that. The third is patience. And patience is, it just means being long-tempered. Patience is the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. Whatever the source of that discomfort is. Patience will show itself in being tolerant with people we disagree with. It'll be patience, it shows itself in a, in a situation to where we don't have control. That's how you know if you're actually becoming patient. Another takeaway is this, right from this passage. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Simply put, I want you to know this. Christ enlarges the heart when he occupies it. Your capacity to bear with one another in love enlarges after asking Jesus into your life. It enlarges. Your capacity to love and to tolerate and to bear with other people, it enlarges every heart that Christ enlarges. Or every heart that Christ inhabits enlarges. He re redefines what love is. Again, because who we are determines what we do. This is just the matching of Christian calling and Christian character. That's just what this is. And the last is this. Keep the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. Keep the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. Church, can I just give you a little advice? 
Keep the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. If there could be one marker of the church in our day and age, if there could be one marker that I think that would have an incredible impact, it's keeping the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. The world is at war with itself, but we must keep a bond of peace. And when we choose to keep a bond of peace, they're not just going to simply see us. They're going to see Jesus in us. And then our lives would verify this, that who you are determines what you do. I want to end with two sentences, and then I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to be through. We're not to love others the way that they deserve to be loved. We would be a fickle people. Instead, we're to love others the way that Jesus loves us. I don't know about you, but that puts a lump in my throat. I'm like, really? You know what that, you know what that makes me do? It makes me to gain a place of humility. It makes me gain a place of gentleness. It, it makes me to be more patient with other people. It makes me to bear in uncomfortable circumstances without lashing out. That also, it makes me to, to remember that, that I am to keep a bond of peace no matter what. So what's the no matter what's? Verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to finish with this. We all need one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the richness of your grace. We thank you, God, that you give us an opportunity for salvation, for our hearts to be made right, that we no longer are dead in our sins and trespasses. But, but God, that you, you finished the work on the cross, that you are not still on the cross, that you were off of the cross. And you even cried out on the cross that it is finished. Well, what is finished? The pathway to salvation. It's clear. It's clear for those who, who willingly submit their lives to Jesus. It doesn't matter of your past. It doesn't matter uh, any, anything about your storyline. It doesn't matter about drug abuse. It doesn't matter if you've left a church, if you've made people mad, if you ran away from people. It doesn't matter. Everything is level at the feet of the cross. So this morning... As we bring this message to heart, it also brings to heart the, just the, the meaning of what salvation is and how that salvation has determined who we are and ultimately is determining what we're to do. So Lord, I don't know what you're doing in the room right now. But if there's a person in this room who has never committed their life to Jesus, and right now you're speaking to them, maybe they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. The Bible calls that word sin. 
that they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders and they don't know what to do. God, if they need to be saved, I pray that you would just give them courage that they would come forward. God, if it's somebody who's in the room right now and they're struggling, maybe they're struggling relationally, and they look at these list of five things and they say, Lord, I've gotten this all wrong. Maybe they need a reset, and maybe the best place for them to reset is for them to come forward, to come to the altar, and just give it to you once and for all. But Lord, maybe it's just somebody who needs to do business with you right where they are, where they just need to come to terms with who they are, and what they've been doing. And I know that your, your grace is sufficient in everyone's time of need. And you will take us right where we are. And you will pull us up by your grace to where you want us to be. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have business to do today. If you would like to come forward, if you would like to pray. Or if you just need to pray where you are. But here's one thing I want to know, and, and I think Garrett would allow us to do this. We're just going to take a couple moments. He's just going to play a little bit of music. If you, if you have other business to do with God and you don't want to just, just move on as business as usual, pause in this moment. Do what it is that God's leading you to do. I'm not trying to manipulate you to do anything. I only want you to do what God wants you to do. And if God is speaking to you, and there's something that you're to do, that means that that message is not yet fulfilled in you until you do it. And maybe today, right now in this moment, would be the time where you could start that process. So as Garrett plays behind us, if everybody could stand. If everybody would just bow their heads. And there may be someone who slips out of the aisle and they just want to come forward and just pray and give it to God, allow them to do that without feeling awkward. If they want to just pray where they are, that's absolutely fine too. But there's no reason to rush. This is a great place to be, and this is a safe group of people to be with. So what is God saying to you? What does He want you to do? Is the Spirit speaking? Maybe the work for you and the Spirit's work for you is not something that needs to be done in this room, but maybe it's a phone call after you leave today. And maybe it has to do with somebody who's on the other side of the room or somebody who's serving kids right now. Well, one thing I know for sure, when God speaks, we ought to listen and do what it is that He's telling us to do. I'm not a man who knows everything. But I've known brokenness, I've known tears, I've known hardship, but I especially know the love and grace of God. And that's what I want you to know today. Take this time, if you need to come forward and pray as some are already doing, please do so. And if you just need to do business right where you are, you have the freedom for that as well.